Hello, I'm Alistair Stewart. And I'm Brock Wilbur. And you're listening to Caring Into the Void, the podcast where we get together, tell each other about a weird or dark story we've heard, and then try and find the silver lining or flip it into something that, while possibly not positive, will at least be productive. Hello, Brock. How are you? Pay no attention to the outside world. None. No attention, Brock. None. How are you? The, this is the only way we I knew how to start this one was to be like there was, uh, for neither of our countries, a good reason to be near <laughs> any form of screen this week, because uh, nothing good coming down that pipeline. No feel-good vibes. So what I did a lot of this week uh, is the first time in quite some time, just going to parks. Oh, dude. Not not having a plan, not having a book, just going to parks and taking the dog who's having a good time. Uh, my new associate editor at work, Caster, uh, she plays in a queer kickball league. So we took the dog out to go uh, cheer on Team Purple. And uh, I was like, kickball, that's that's like baseball, right? And my wife yeah. was like, yeah, it's it's the same rules, except they can also like pick up the ball and sometimes throw it at you. It's like, cool, cool, cool. So this isn't like soccer where I'm going to spend the next two years having to constantly Google and being like, I thought I understood, but now I don't get it. <laughs> anyway, uh, we we set up shop. We got some folding chairs. We got the dog. We got a couple of coffees. We're like, good morning. Here we go. Let's do a whole day of queer kickball cheering on and uh, purple team goes up for the first inning and the uh, green team goes up and green team is made out of nothing but the most attractive gym guys you've ever seen just <laughs> all chiseled folks and team purple is pals that are here to have a good time and the <laughs> at the end of the second inning there wasn't a scoreboard so I, was, I wasn't fully sure what was happening but i knew that green had done a lot more running around the bases than purple had done all the teams got into the middle of the field and had a huddle uh and apparently uh green was up 16 to 0 at the end of the second inning and uh they were like so guys do you want to just call it or like do you want to play the whole rest of the nine innings like you know, for fun. And uh, Team Purple was like, who exactly is having fun here? Who wants to keep doing that? So they broke from the huddle. Again, my wife and I did not understand what was happening here. So they broke from the huddle, and then they go back out on the field, and they start third inning. And all of a sudden, both teams are made up of equally purple people and green people. And I was like, so wait, why? sorry. We just remixed the teams, and we're moving on with the game. I, 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 am, I am unlearning kickball in the moment. I thought I had my finger on this, and now something I've never seen in sports has happened. And basically, they just decided, like, hey, what if we just split off into two teams, and if we're going to have fun, like, it can all be in competition with each other and against each other. And everyone's like, you know what? That actually does sound like fun, so... It took a couple innings for somebody to explain to me what had just happened. I was like, I don't know who I'm cheering for. Caster, I, whatever team it is that you're on. And then she got a big kick and like got on base. And then they were like, yeah, you know what? I think we should call it now. So a couple of innings of fun, wild fun, but like uh, park time, park life. Uh, all, all I have is the song Park Life stuck in my head now because that's the only thing I have to associate with parks. So um, yeah, parks, the outdoors, no phone. That genuinely sounds fantastic. <laughs> and also, I'm kind of amazed that the, that would you like to stop moment, which in certain other contexts with cricket, which is the sport which I know it from, is basically the polite English version of asking, would you like to stop hitting yourself? We we have those laws for like children's baseball in America where like, you know, if you're up by 10, you're just like, 
Okay, you you call it. You let everyone go home. Don't embarrass anybody else. Uh, I've never yep. seen it happen amongst drunk adults. So like that was great for me. I'm genuinely very touched by the fact that Kickball has this connective tissue with cricket because cricket is polite war. Um, it takes <laughs> two to three days, and uh, if you lose, then you still regain the moral victory if you put on the best food for the visiting team. Oh, that's perfect. Seriously, I've been told this straight-facedly by, by county cricket players, that, you know, if, if you lose, as long as you do really good cake, they'll be like, oh, that was really good cake, and we beat them, but now we feel slightly bad about it. And they're like, yeah, you do. Have a safe trip. Call us when you get home. Bye. Because that's how parts of this country work. You, you, you guys are so good at eating your passive aggression, and I appreciate that for you as a people. Well, I think the best possible expression of that I heard recently, there was an episode of Last Week Tonight that touched on the, the Good Friday Agreement over here and how the, the latest bumblefuck in charge is in the process of destroying it. And, and John Oliver did this beautiful, very delicate thing where he talked about it for a couple of minutes and then went, of course, Ireland has a very long history of having trouble with England, and that is the last I will say about the subject because I sound like this. <laughs> yeah it was a great line <laughs> and just that willingness to go hmm yeah okay best not it is one of the parts of our national character that, that i do actually enjoy and i don't enjoy a lot of it but that bit i certainly enjoy now i'm really glad you found some park space dude that that sounds excellent i may well be doing that after we're done recording today both my partner and i have had about four months of quite intensive stuff and it's all starting to fade off a little bit but we're both still in that kind of phase so we think we probably need to get out of the house that and the fact that as we record this next weekend is the that's right bitches one is still not dead platinum jubilee weekend for the queen wonderful or as i'm increasingly suspicious the hologram of the queen that has been roaming around for some time and we are not leaving the fucking house for four days because there are two things which drive this tiny little island absolutely buck wild one is us almost winning the Eurovision Song Contest, which has happened, <laughs> or um, almost doing quite well in sport, which has happened. And the other is, hooray, a royal is alive and old, or, oh no, a royal is dead, which is basically two sides of the same coin. I, I, I may actually end up talking about this in a future episode, but if you're unfamiliar with it, Google the code word London Bridge has fallen, which is somehow... Not a Gerard Butler action movie, but it's actually the code for when the Queen dies. And when that is the case, this country is going to close for a fortnight. Literally close for a fortnight. Um, there will be nothing on television other than, wasn't it great when we had the Queen, who is dead now, and we are all sad, programming for, for, for 14 days. Oh no. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh no. I have the complete Twilight Zone, the complete Night Gallery, and the complete Press Gang on Blu-ray. I feel like this is the nerd equivalent of bottled water and Snickers for this exact eventuality. But yeah, I think we might be grabbing some park time today because next week will not be a good time to do that, for sure. Oh boy, a fortnight of just remembrance over that Westworld robot that's wandering around the house right now. Okay, good, 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 good. Retrospectives on her time being old. Retrospectives <laughs> on her time being not quite as old. Do you remember in World War Two when she was in black and white? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an episode. I need to hear all the details on that in the future. Uh, because Oh, uh, if only because your caring moment at the end, the positivity around it is just going to 
give me an extra six <laughs> months of life. <laughs> I will write that up because I actually know more about that than I probably should. Yeah, we'll we'll do that in a future episode. Okay, do you have a story for us today? Yes, I do. I've been watching a lot of documentaries recently, having actually picked up a bunch of Arrow films, thanks to a discount code from our own Jordan Shively. Um, Hey Brock, did you know Jordan's not just a fiercely good writer, but an amazing graphic designer and podcaster, and that people should check out his work at Void Merch and hire him for it? And I I, I did the research on this just before we hopped on there. The technical term is all of the money? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I did. I did try to be an economy major, so yes, I, I do vaguely remember the term. Good, good. good. See, knowledge is power, mm. and thanks to to Jordan's, you know, largesse. Uh, like I say, I picked up a bunch of documentaries. One of which was the the Dawson City one we talked about, and another one of which is a, a documentary called White uh, White Riot, by, directed by Rubika Shah. The premise of this is very simple, and to begin with, we really need to establish one fact, which is that Eric Clapton is a massive racist, as well as a vaccine-skeptic dickheel. The, the fact that he went out of his way to write songs uh, about uh, him and Van Morrison both uh, chugged out some singles about how we gotta stick up to the man that wants us to get vaccinated and uh, wearing masks is for jerks. Uh, some people uh, in the last two years really showed us their whole ass, didn't they? The, the fucking irrelevant old white man power hour. <laughs> Hello, I'm Van Morrison. Would you like to hear one of my one of my twenty five new songs? That's a threat, sir. That is not a promise. That's that's a threat, even without the politics. Like that's that's too much, Morrison. <laughs> Stop me, or I'll harmonica again. You know. <laughs> but yeah, Clapton turns out. Massive fucking racist. Um, in the 1970s, the UK actually sucked even harder than it already does. The far right hadn't yet learned that if they must up their hair and said, gosh, a lot of fuck-witted left-wing TV producers would book them so we could laugh at them, or as it turns out, normalise them. Uh, instead, the far right were big angry lads who talked openly about kicking the shit out of people who weren't from here, but who, odds are, went to school with the people they were wanting to kick the shit out of. Basically, fascism was the new white. Um, Bowie experimented with it, although he would spend the rest of his life working that off very loudly and very successfully. Rod Stewart, proving conclusively we did not want his body and did not think he was sexy, supported the far right. And renowned <laughs> blues guitarist Eric Clapton stopped a concert to tell all the non-white people in the audience to go home. History does not record if his hands exploded from the just colossal spike of irony this presumably generated, but... Regrettably, it seems unlikely. Anyway, when Clapton did this, justifiably, people got angry. And remember, this is the 70s, so this is pre-internet. So somehow this went viral anyway. And when they got angry, these people did what a lot of Brits always do, which is, and I, I swear this is true, they wrote a strongly worded letter. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. An avant-garde theatre group uh, led by a photographer called Red Saunders who is this large, avuncular, counterculture Santa Claus, along with friends Kate Webb, Roger Huddle, Joe Refford, Pete Bruno, and others, um, wrote to the New Musical Express, complaining about this awful, toxic bullshit that Clapton had spewed. Um, the P.S. on this, the kiss-off for it, this is a direct quote, is, P.S. Who shot the sheriff, Eric? It sure as hell wasn't you. Now, some context. This is the 1970s. We're just at, at the 
point where punk is about to crest. You know, all, all their safety pins glinting in the sun at the top of the wave. And I'm kind of obsessed with this letter because it is this delicious crossover between full-on, Dear sir, I wish to complain, yours sincerely, style bullshit meaningless English correspondence, and full-on, all-out punk. The way I found myself thinking of it is that PS is absolutely the parent of, of the fuck you, I won't do what you tell me refrain from Rage Against the Machine. And I find it really sweet and kind of endearing. <laughs> and it worked because basically the, the letter was printed and this Red and his, his friends realized that, to, to borrow the best line the Expanse wrote, they were the adult in the room. So, they put together an organization called Rock Against Racism. This, by the way, was in August 1976. Over the next two years, they did huge amounts of stuff. There were gigs, there was deprogramming of skinheads. It was essentially punk diplomacy. There was occasionally money. Um, they put out a zine called Temporary Hoardings uh, until the money ran out. And then when the money came back in, they put out another issue. And it was full of stuff like interviews and kind of here is how you organize in your area, here are things you can say which will kind of de-radicalize situations, all this kind of stuff. And there's this moment in the documentary where I think it's Kate Webb who was in charge of the, the mailbox initially. And she said, we kept getting these letters from kids saying, I'm really worried about racism in my school. And I've heard about Rock Against Racism. What events do you have in my area? And these kids were in the middle of, you know, podunk shire in the uk they were in tiny little towns nothing was going on right so what they would do is write back and go thank you so much for getting in contact we're really sorry we don't have anyone in your area so you are now the head of the podunk shire chapter of rock against racism so if you wrote in you were recruited and they would basically use these kids to send kind of send them literature to whatever they could do to spread the word and they created this artisanal kind of DIY web of activism and journalism. And it kind of worked. I mean, the, the movie follows two years. It goes from 1976 through to the end of about 1978. And by that point, they were getting pretty regular press. They had successfully uh, taken the edge off a couple of quite serious National Front events. Uh, they were working with the Anti-Nationalism League they were putting together um, some really interesting, really good gigs, which had stuff like reggae and steel bands on next to punk bands. And there's a really interesting piece in there where they talk about there's a, a very, very successful punk act in the UK at that time called Sham 69. And the thing which defined Sham 69 was, that, was basically their remarkable sympathy for the English blue collar. So, you know, these were lads who had come up from the most working class of working class areas. You know, they would go to school in the school at the end of the road that the factory they'd die in was at the other end of. And they were incredibly sympathetic to that audience. And as a result, they had a very different view of the racism that was being spread through that group. They had what they viewed as context. So there is this ongoing thing which is touched on quite a lot where they're always trying to get Sham 69 on board and at the same time a lot of the bands they work with aren't terribly happy about that because their audience is far more fascist racist adjacent than everybody else's so you have like I say what amounts to punk diplomacy all playing out across a very accelerated time scale 
And it's full of these moments of weird Britishness. Like I say, there's this kind of congratulations. You're now on staff there. Um, there is the fact sorry, that, that... That one just got me the right, right? way. <laughs> uh, that there is the fact that, that, they, that, that, like I say, they literally kept running out of money for the zine, which I think is fantastic. That they would develop fallback strategies for gigs. So if they were doing a gig in, a, in an area where the National Front had a lot of presence, it would be, all right, they're not let in. If somehow they get let in, and they pretty much always were, because skinhead as a cultural identity in this country was very kind of cross-genre. It was very kind of cross-medium. So, you know, you could be someone in a skinhead skinhead haircut and DMs who loved ska music, or you could be someone in a skinhead haircut and DMs who had a copy of Mein Kampf in his back pocket. It was very difficult to tell them apart. So they had things like, hold them at the door. If they get in, hold them at the stage. Don't let them near the microphone. If they get to the microphone, turn the microphone off. If they get to the microphone and they, and, and the, the, they turn the microphone off, that's when we call the police. <laughs> because the police at this point, and I'm skirting around current affairs on both sides of the Atlantic when I say this, were far more openly sympathetic to this type of group. There is a piece of footage that Shah uses of one of the Metropolitan Police then commanders on a national talk show being asked about racist violence and basically straight down the camera going, well, there's no evidence these people are being discriminated against because of the color of their skin. And then it basically... Oh right? And then it basically smash cuts to a National Front March where the leader of the party at that time first off thanks the police for all their help. Good... So it wasn't good. None of this was good. And yet, in the middle of all of this, rock against racism persevere. And they get to the point where they decide to run what amounts to this huge, huge festival in a National Front hotspot. So the, the idea is that they're going to march this group of people from Trafalgar Square to London's East End for an open-air concert at Victoria Park in Hackney. And he just fucking lied constantly. It was great. At one point, um, I think it's Saunders who's talking about how, well, we didn't really tell him how many people were coming because we didn't want all the hassle of bringing in Portaloos. So when the the park asked, we just said, yeah, it's 500 people. 100,000 turned up. Perfect. And... Uh, He's obviously asked at one point whether this was a problem. He said, let me put it this way. The last time I saw the park warden, he was disappearing in a cloud of ganja smoke as one of the steel bands looked after him. So I think we're all right. When we had our uh, Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020, our city decided like, well, because uh, uh, our, our our city center sort of area where this is happening is a, is an entire area built of like fountains and statues and uh, stuff. Uh, all based on the 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 names of the racist men that built the city and built it with redlining to uh, actively work against minority populations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there is, for no apparent reason, in the middle of this, uh, as an aside, just a, a life-size statue of Winston Churchill in Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, it's one of those that every time I see it, I go, <laughs> why? <laughs> why is that there? Anyway... Uh, so it's just a whole bunch of like high-end shops and fountains named after racists. So obviously the perfect place to stage this. Um, and what they did for a couple of the days of that was just shut down that entire part of town. So everything was closed, cops there. But like the thing I realized when we got there, uh, 10,000 strong, was that like 
of course there weren't going to be porta potties and now none of the businesses were open and certainly the the city was not going to bring out porta potties to help keep these protesters in a place that they really really wanted them to go home so um the uh the natural the natural solution became well if you have to relieve yourself there are so many police cars here on which one <laughs> could do so uh, and so uh I don't know who amongst us was the first to have the idea, but it was a good enough idea that especially before any sort of real tensions had broken out between people, you'd see the cops sort of go like, I, I should I should go over there and like hit that person with a large stick or something, but like I know what I'd be setting off. So there was a period where you could just sort of like do that and nothing was – it, it, everything was too flammable, so if you were urinating on on the the matchsticks there, like those, no one was flicking that matchstick. But like a particularly wonderful moment in time. I love that, and that's that is very much the spirit in which this big event that they held was carried out. And it, it just always remains very funny because it's one of those things that when you're very very angry and you want to hold a giant event like this, sometimes the infrastructure around it like it isn't anyone's first thought. Like, well, we'll get there and then we'll we'll do this thing. And it's like, and where will where will people go? And it's like, right, okay. So we left that part out. Uh, we left out how people are getting access to water. We will we'll we'll figure it out as we go. <laughs> exactly. Um, the other big highlight of all of this is in the run up to this event, they realize two things. Firstly, they need the clash to play, and secondly, they need the clash to not headline. So you have this whole thing where they're figuring out how to politely tell the Clash they are not going on last. And this is all intercut with an interview with a band member who's quite cheerfully going, yeah, we messed with them a little bit. And apparently the Clash would turn the lights on and off in the rehearsal studio. And there are these hilarious photos of them protesting outside the National Front offices. And it is like watching Elvis hold up a sign outside an NRA meeting. It, it, the, the cognitive dissonance is extraordinary. Because you have th these these just absolute icons of, of punk rock counterculture holding up signs which basically boil down to, why can't you be nicer to people, you fucks? And, and it, it really works. My big take-home from all of this, though, is that fundamentally this is a blueprint. It, it is an example of a thing which I've had to struggle to reach an awful lot this week, which is belief that anything in my culture it works. Anything which is designed to help people works. And a lot of the time, and this has actually been touched on in a lot of the stuff I've interacted with this week. I watched the Adam Conover Netflix show, The G Word, which also plays in very similar spaces. A lot of the time, it doesn't. And, you know, there is we don't really have the time and we're not quite the show to get into the fact that Government is designed to help certain people and help them by using others as fuel, but it, it is. And White Riot, and even the circumstances of the song it's named for and how this became kind of a tug of war between two wildly ideologically opposed political groups, White Riot tells you that it can be done, that if you see something that's bad, if you see an injustice, and God knows there's enough of those to fucking see right now, you can do something about it. And it's not without cost. It's not without consequence. You know, these the, the members of Rock Against Racism talk about how they would have sand under their letterbox because just in case petrol was poured through, and that meant that it wouldn't catch fire. Um, Saunders talks about being sent a bullet the day his baby daughter was born. This is terrifying. There's no two ways around it. But it 
works because two years after they were set up, they marched 100,000 people through one of the largest National Front neighborhoods in London and visibly watched racist dicks retreat into their bodies at the realization that everyone from every walk of life, every gender, every age, every group, was just sick of their shit. <laughs> and it all started with a strongly worded letter. <laughs> And again, I don't want to go into detail about all the shit that's happened this week as we've been recording, but I needed to remember that this week, and I'm really glad I did. Oh boy, do you have a caring to go with this story? Yes, I do. You need to be angrier <laughs> about everything, because there is not a single support structure on either side of the Atlantic that is where it needs to be, and absolutely none of them have the will to change that. You need to be angrier. But here's the thing. All wideband anger does is exhaust you and enable them to put you in the angry file. So, like my friend Shep says, it's not that you aren't needed in the fight. We're all needed in the fight. But we're all needed in one fight. Pick something you care about. Get knowledgeable, get passionate, communicate, and absolutely hold the door open for others. Because the punk aesthetic of do-it-yourself saves lives. It will save more. And the key to it, the key to changing the future to what we need, is doing it yourself together. Write a strongly worded letter. Start some shit. Find the good trouble. Thank you. I think I needed to hear that individually. Yes. <laughs> wow. Okay. No worries. Thanks, dude. I love that strongly worded letter got to come full circle in this one. That was that was incredibly powerful writing, my friend. <laughs> Thank you, dude. And 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 more British than imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> if if I I think an earlier draft of this may have started with "Dear Sir." <laughs> As your constituent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> what do you have for us this week, Brock? Uh, well, I'm going to send you a photo here, and you just you just tell me what you think uh, what you think you're looking at here. I love I love that you do visual aids. I love this. Oh, we're talking about one of my favorite places on Earth. This place. This is fucked up. Brilliant. Oh, fantastic. Then here we are, ladies and gentlemen. We are coming to the gates of hell. The gates of hell. That's what this thing is called. Uh, it is a gigantic sinkhole. Uh, it's 230 feet wide uh, in Turkmenistan. It's about 150 miles north of the country's capital. And it is just, uh, it, it looks like where the asteroid landed that destroyed the dinosaurs. <laughs> if it was still on fire today, it's just this gigantic, huge pit that's just constantly on fire and has been for decades. So basically the story behind it is that like the Soviets were in the area at the time they were drilling, back when the Soviets controlled absolutely everything everywhere. Uh, anyway, uh, they're drilling and this whole area sort of caves in. There's this giant crater and they're like, oh, there's like a bunch of like really valuable stuff uh, down there, especially because it goes so deep. There's there's a lot of things that they're like looking at it from the edge and they're like, I want that, I want that thing, oh, we should get that thing. If there's a bunch more of that, I would love that. But there's also a lot of natural gas that's coming up from this pit. So they're like, here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing. What we're going to do, follow me on this, we're going to light it on fire. 
And what it's going to do is that fire is going to burn it out. A couple of days tops, that, that gas will burn down all the way down, and then we can get in there and, and get that dirty treasure, whatever whatever it is down there, that ore or what have you that we think we, uh, we really need. So they lit it on fire, and that was in 1971, and it has not stopped burning to this day. It is just oh, constantly God. engulfed in flames. So the photo of it looks like you're looking at like a place on Tatooine, and like a point where like a Death Star laser has really, uh, yeah, it feels like I'm looking at Alderaan right now. That's that's what I'm <laughs> getting at. Uh, so um, it's become the sort of thing that like their president, in his 16 year term, has multiple times really, really tried to get people to come together, like a scientist, to be like, time to close it up. And it has not been made better. In fact, they kind of might have made it worse. So they gave up in the mid in the mid tens. <laughs> And they just sort of uh, made it into a tourist trap. They're like, I, we're not going to stop this. So, like, do you guys want to go there? So now, uh, so many people per year go out there just to, like, take selfies with the gate of hell, uh, which I find uh, just an exceptional decision on everyone's part. Um, oh, my God. So uh, the president has put out a call now uh, in 2022 where he's like, all right, all right, enough of that, enough. Uh, I am looking for scientists anywhere in the world. We will pay whatever it takes. This this needs to be done. But also, uh, because it's one of their like biggest like attention-drawing things, in 2019, uh, it was rumored that their president had died. And so to assuage those rumors, he got in a rally car and did donuts around it while filming himself to prove that he was still alive and the country no was, fucking way was pretty cool like so this is where you go to prove that you've not gone to hell yet like nope this is me doing donuts at the gates of hell so i'm not sure why he wants to get rid of it there's not a lot of other great tourism opportunities anyway like there's there's headlines running around the country around the world right now that are like oh uh is is it gonna be sealed it's set to be sealed like hey, we're gonna seal it but, like, there is, as far as I can tell, not a single plan anywhere that is actively in the works. So that I, this is more of an aspirational headline, sort of a reminder, like, right, so there's a call out. We are, we are casting. We are auditioning for some lead roles in our project here to turn off hell. And right now, we don't have a lot of great casting options. We've got Benedict Cumberbatch, obviously. He'll do anything. He has a day rate. It's fine. Um, but, like... I feel like a lot of things want to call themselves the gates to hell in tourism around the world, and you're like, oh, well, that's just like a weird little cemetery or something. No, this is the actual fuck fuckhole sinkhole gates to hell. You can actively see hell in any photo of this that you pull up. So, like, I don't know. I, I, but there is a particular part of that that just, like, it's a tourist trap. That makes sense. Hell would be a tourist trap. Uh, that You want to prove that you're still alive. That's where you go to be like, look, I'm not in the hole. I am outside of the hole. I remain here. One day I will be in there, obviously, but that day is not this Thursday. Uh, so that is, uh, <laughs> I you love it. So tell me why you love it. I, I love it because this looks like the set of the darkest episode Stargate SG-1 never quite got around to making. What if the Stargate fell over on its side and then burst into flames? And they're like, well, we still got to go through. You can see MacGyver going, it's fine, Jack. It's fine. Jack, it's falling over. It's fine. It really it's on fire. The planet is on fire. 
<laughs> the thing I find really endearing about this is, especially now I know the history behind it, is that it speaks so very powerfully to that part of the human condition we all can't help but love, which is the fuck it instinct. And I, I feel like this manifests in two very, very important places in the timeline of this place's history. And the first is the, should we just set it on fire? Because that means that we'll be able to get to the stuff we want to mine. Yeah, sure, why not? We've got this, we've got all, all this fire. It's not going anywhere. Oh, 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 you know, that initial moment. And then you said that yeah, the, the plan to, to close it up has been, has been a very important part of kind of multiple discussions. I promise you, I promise you on any important text you care to name that at some point during every single one of the discussions about how to close it up, someone has said some variation on blow it up more? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Dynamite. Absolutely. Explosives. Always. That's always it. <laughs> and you know, I, I just I, I want to see the day after Armageddon plays in this country. I want to see the Turkmenistan version of Quatermass stumbling out, eyes wide, going, that's it. It'll work. <laughs> I need some miners, a space shuttle, a nuclear weapon, and William Fickner. You can have Fickner. God. <laughs> Damn it. I, I, I love shit like this. I, it, it warms the cockles of, of my heart to see parts of the planet where just weird shit happens. I, this is great. It's, it, it, it is truly the ultimate fuck around and find out for like a group of like six Russian scientists in 71. Right. None of the people that did this could possibly still be alive. They are all in the pit, essentially. <laughs> the last words are, it's probably fine. Or, I fucking hate you. <laughs> so I, I got a carry moment for this one here. Um. Not knowing how to handle you was their first mistake. I mean, they could have just left you alone, but uh, they thought they could guess and check and maybe get you out of their way. And now, now, now you're here to stay, I guess. Now you're a much bigger, bigger problem uh, for them. Oops. Now it's your turn to dare them to treat you maybe a little bit better. You can keep going. It doesn't really matter to you. They're going to be all like that. You're going to be all like this. Their best choice might be to rope you off, maybe drive around you to remind people that they're still not dead, that you're still very much alive. But like, come on, you'll still be there long after they have any life to show off. Now, they've put out a worldwide call to see if anyone knows how to maybe ask you to calm down a little bit. That's kind of fruitless. Ah. That's, that's a pointless endeavor. No one can stop you unless you decide that you're ready to let them go or perhaps bored. It doesn't have to be forgiveness. Maybe it's just time for you to go burn brightly with new scenery. Who knows what little darkness deposits of despots you could set off flame next. Well, wherever you go, people are going to want to come out and see you, say hi, and sit in awe of your spectacle. And that's you. And never stop being you. I love that. <laughs> it makes me very happy. Look, anytime we can find Silent Hill in the real world, just a flame forever burning underground because of man's hubris. <laughs> it's like hubris, but jaunty. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There isn't enough cart racing in Silent Hill. Silent Hill, June buggies. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> uh, hilariously, um, Sony at one point in the PS3 era 
has a kart racer game, their version of a Mario Kart, and they stuck in a bunch of uh, characters from across their IPs. And there is a pyramid head character, a very cartoonish, fun oh little pyramid God. head that you can kart race with. And I'm just like, you know what? There are ways to, you think Mario Kart is a perfect system, but then you see uh, Robbie the Rabbit and Pyramid Head uh, zooming around that track, throwing out uh, bananas, and you're like, you know what? Art can always be better. Art can always be improved upon. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever play the um, Silent Hill arcade game? Yes. Did you have the terrifying experience I did where you didn't notice it was Dolby surround sound when you started playing? Yes. Good. I'm glad it wasn't just me. For those of you who haven't seen this arcade machine, it is an absolutely standard. Here is your plastic sidearm shoot at things in Silent Hill as you're on rails kind, kind of shooter. But it's very carefully designed to hide from you is the game has speakers behind you. So you proceed through the asylum made of meat with the nurses made of porcelain and hatred. And, and very slowly but surely, you get to the inevitable point where little Pyramidy, as I assume he was called in Mario Kart, makes his appearance. And he is neither little nor Pyramidy. He is a colossal man with an anti-geometric head and a sword that he wants to put into you repeatedly. And as this happens, the music starts to go... And you fight him and it doesn't work because it's pyramid head. He's like taxes. It just is. He's just there. And and you're, you're now retreating the whole time of him coming towards you surrounded by evil beetles because, you know, you've got to have something which works as cannon fodder and the music's going. And then by the third stage of the fight, you are in the middle of this Philip Glass Kiyanakati noise hell which is coming from all around you. This huge bastard with a triangular face is trying to cleave you right up. You are surrounded by badly animated yet somehow terrifying vast carnivorous scarab beetles, and you're about to be horribly killed. And it is the most unsettling experience I've ever had with an arcade game. It was fucking great. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I knew that there was some sort of stereo thing happening, but the behind-me speakers did take till that moment where I was like, Okay, so this is a little more than playing through a House of the Dead or a Time Crisis. This is um, this is bad for me, right? I am in a bad. I am in a not. This is not good. This is not the preference of places I should be in right now. I've read this comic. It ran for two years, and at the end, he's trapped in another video game. I don't think I like this. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> Do you have any self caring into the void this week? In a week we should have just built the entire plane out of the black box. That's the self care. <laughs> Yeah, I do. Um, it's a really stupid, trivial one, and it worked. Uh, I bought a bunch of Lego minifigures, because there is uh, now a Lego minifigure set, which is Muppet characters, and it has sincerely filled me with joy. Um, we scored a Rolf straight away, who has a little Lego minifigure Beethoven bust as his accessory, which is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And we were also able to get Statler and Waldorf, who look fantastic. But the Madras. breakout of it is is my patron saint, is Fozzie. And it's not just that he's a great Fozzie figure, he is. It's that, as someone pointed out, he comes with two props, one of which is a mic stand, the other one of which is a banana. And the banana fits in his ear. Oh my god. Oh my god. So the base of the microphone I have in the office, as opposed to the cupboard where I'm, I'm talking to you now, has two things attached to it. It has a little Ludens, which is the Kahima Productions 
weird skull-faced astronaut knight guy because I play a lot of Death Stranding and I like the design. So he's hanging off one side. And then in the base of the microphone, there is Fozzy. And every time I look at the base of that microphone, I feel like if you want, if you needed to take a photo of me to understand me, that gets you about 85%. A, a stand-up comedian bear with a banana in his ear and a weird dead zombie night astronaut guy. That's that's pretty much my brand right there. From the moment that you said Fozzy Pear was your spirit. Like, I just, I, I've just been crying because, of course, there's there's no greater version of you. And I'm just, it, my head is just like flashing a mega mix of everything that you've ever said to me and hearing it in... <laughs> in bare voice and just like I, <laughs> I i'm experiencing such pure uh like i have left my body oh my god oh my god <laughs> how about you so i went to a, a sea witch formal event uh last weekend N you know a, a pretty normal weekend for the midwest in america um it was the uh event that was the release of a local person who works in fashion and design uh she made a stop motion horror film that she spent the last three years working on and it was the premiere of oh that. my god i i don't know how somebody in your early 20s that is that pretty and that much in the fashion world makes them the most body horror <laughs> incredible it's it's a simply incredible film and like uh, we're going to premiere it at our publication as soon as it gets through the rest of the festival circuit but um in, in premiere, and again, for a 10-minute film, uh, there was an event held at a warehouse in the northern part of town uh, where for two and a half hours, there was an immersive theater experience, uh, which is a small trigger in our house because my wife went to grad school to study immersive theater, and so she uh, goes into all immersive theater situations either being like, this is really good, or here is why everything around us is awful and has a very unpleasant time. So I'm always just like, wary of 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 when that word is used because a lot of people can try to throw it out and it just means i don't know people are in costumes yeah of course that was not this this was a thing where everyone uh, dressed sea witch formal no one showed up to this without an over-the-top costume uh which for oh, a couple dear. of hundred people in the midwest i i i would normally even be that guy like i don't know i had jeans on it, it's fine i'm here no one cares um and then we interacted <laughs> with a variety of uh, sprints, spirits, and demons. There was a map that was handed out to us that had some vague clues on how we should handle some of these demons. Uh, and also, uh, we were given pouches full of uh, magic pellets uh, that glow to oh, give to them what? by way of payment. And sometimes, uh, somebody in my friend group would be talking to them, and all of a sudden, somebody would run up from the side and take a black marker and run it over their hand and say you're dead now. I one of the most incredible things I've ever been to because I barely understood the rules, but I'm the only one in my group to have made it through alive. We have a local musician named Calvin Arsenia, who is a six-five uh, black bisexual man who uh, is a harpist uh, in his early twenties, uh, who does maybe the world's greatest eight-minute cover of Britney Spears's "Toxic." Oh my God! He sat in the corner for most of the evening. Uh, performing songs based on songs that he'd written for the movie. Not the songs for the movie, but songs that he felt like shared the vein of that and cover songs. And then at some point, we all sat on the ground in the middle of this warehouse. The movie played. 
uh, Calvin came out with the harp and played a song saluting several of us individually and our deaths. And then a DJ came out and started The Wake, uh, and The Wake was uh, a lot of Oingo Boingo uh, and New Order, and we all just danced until we couldn't stand up anymore. A weird four hours of my life. Uh, just so much joy unendingly. In, in prepping for Sea Witch Formal, um, my wife and I got the same aqua green shade of uh, fingernail polish. Uh, we got a, a matching shade of eyeliner and some other such things. And I used to do a lot of fingernail painting in college and then stopped. Uh, I did eyeliner in Los Angeles for like a couple of months and gave up. And it's now been like a decade and a half. And like sitting down and doing that was both like a reminder, like I feel better in my body with a little bit of flair like this. But also my first thought wasn't even like, oh, I feel a little more like me. It was actually oh, is this why all my friends are into painting miniatures at this point for like games? Like, is this the joy that comes with the, the like, I can't touch a, a phone for a bit. I've just got to sit here and focus on a very small space and sort of Zen garden my way through it. So like in the days since I've been going back uh, to stores and finding eyeliner, I'm like, you know what? I run a, a pretty punk rock newspaper I, I'm not sure if it's going to be detrimental to the business side of things if a 37-year-old uh, starts just wearing a normal amount of uh, eyeliner uh, and uh, fingernail polish each day. So, like, um, I don't know. My self-care for the week was to be like, you know what? There's there's something about the last two and a half years where it's like I literally bought and had tailored for the first time in my life a suit in January of 2020 because I was just starting this job. I was like, I'm going to look like a professional man. I'm going to look like a Hitchcock leading man where my suit fits great even when I'm doing action sequences. And then, like, I no longer fit into that suit in any world. Like, nothing I wear anymore means anything. So there is something that is tying into this sort of idea that, like, hey, what if now that people can see me again, I actually gave a shit about my appearance, but also, like, reinvented that appearance to match what I am and how I feel and what it is I think I represent. I was like, so I don't know, doing sort of this whole like makeover thing just in terms of like, and now we're coming back outside. And now like maybe I should present as something because I haven't had to present as something in my shorts on the couch for two and a half years while zooming and not letting anyone see anything beneath my neck in case I wasn't wearing a shirt. So like, yeah, this sea witch formal haunted DJ wake uh, really awakened something inside of me to be like, you know what? I miss feeling pretty. I'm going to lean into that. Let's see where this goes. So I am so fucking happy for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Seriously, because the, 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 that is one of those classes of realization which is incredibly hard to get to because it feels so elemental you know and it's it's that thing of this makes me feel good and it hurts no one so obviously i don't deserve it <laughs> and that last bit is always invisible and always and, and, and always inaudible and to push through that and to get to the no no i'm good thanks is incredible i am so happy that you have rediscovered this part of yourself which makes you feel good do it do it all the fucking way they're a thousand percent i have however understood that i need to this is actually what's going to make me have to stop chewing my fingernails because i looked at the other day and i was like oh i just ate like a lot of paint chips okay so that can't be good for me <laughs> whoops 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 doesn't look good doesn't feel good on my tum tum <laughs> do you have uh do you have some sharing into the void for this week yeah, I do. Uh, it's a graphic novel. 
Um, it came out last week uh, from DC, who are doing a very, very good job of um, actually steering into Pride in a meaningful way and on a regular basis, as opposed to Marvel, who... That's a whole other episode. But right. um, DC uh, put out a book called Galaxy the Prettiest Star, which has art by Jess Taylor and is written by Jadzia Axelrod. I've known Jadzia for a very long time. She is a force of measurable good in genre podcasting. If you haven't heard Voice of Free Planet X, which is, uh, the, I think, the first big show she did, check it out. It's really, really good. But Galaxy is fantastic. It's about a kid who lives in a small Midwestern town who is the son of the local basketball coach, Is has a best friend, uh, has a fantastic dog, uh, is on the basketball team, and isn't human. And um, okay. he and his and his family are refugees from an alien planet. And his actual identity is that he's female. Uh, he's called Taylor. Um, her correctly spelt name from her planet is Taylia, T-A-E-L-Y-R. And the book follows Taylor as she... Meets a new girl in town, falls in love, realizes that her identity is a mask, and it's one that is choking her, and what happens when she embraces who she really is. And it would be so easy for this to be either bleak or sappy. It would be so easy if for this to steer very, very dark to the point where it was performative, or sappy to the point where, you know, people go, oh, it's okay, we know you're an alien and a, and a female alien now, and we're just good old small-town folks, and we accept you. And because Jadzia is a very, very good author, neither of these things happen. It The edge of Taylor becoming who she truly is, is ragged. Everyone reacts to it differently. And all those reactions are complex. And all those reactions play very real. And this is a book where Argus, the dog, who is a corgi, is actually a biomechanical alien from a different planet. You gotta. You absolutely gotta. That's just baseline. Right? So to have that 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 level of reality and pragmatism to it is really, really good. Also, Jess Taylor's art is unlike anything I've, I've ever seen. The best way to describe it is, is it's, it's Jack Kirby-esque in that it has that same kind of kinetic freedom to it. But she also absolutely adores the fact that people are weird looking and i mean if you've ever read anything by the late great kyle baker the, one of the kind of very distinguishing features of baker's work was no one in his books was conventionally handsome and everyone looked like someone you knew you know <laughs> chins were weird faces were weird eyebrows were weird and taylor has that but it's also mixed with this willingness to balance reality and character design with artistic license and because Jadzi is a very, very good comic creator as well, it's one of those books where the script and the art are in absolute lockstep. I loved it to tiny, tiny pieces, and I would read and watch... I would read anything that these two are involved in. So yeah, Galaxy the Prettiest Star by Jadzi Axelrod and uh, Jess Taylor from DC Comics. Definitely worth checking out. And uh, I, I suppose this is the point to plug that uh, Finding Batman, uh, bitten by, uh, written by Kevin Conroy, will also be hitting during this period. Uh, most people uh, know that Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman, the animated series, and Batman and so many other, other places uh, across the spectrum of things, uh, came out as gay in 2016 when he was in a play uh, on Broadway playing a uh, man trying to conceal the fact that he was dying of AIDS. Uh, and uh, during a Q&A, just like broke down crying. It was like, I've had to attend the funeral of so many friends and never got to say like, 
what I really thought. So like he, they gave oh. him his own, uh, his own magazine for Pride uh, in DC this year, uh, which he has penned himself. Uh, it's called Finding Batman. Uh, so be on the lookout for that one because that's that's one that they announced a couple of months ago, and I was like. Okay, okay, okay. You don't have to cry. You don't have to cry at the announcement of a thing. Like, that's just good and fine. So, like... Um... It's, it's exactly. <laughs> um, do you have a sharing for us? My sharing is that uh, Dustin McNeil and these folks over at Harker Press, they've put out a couple of these books. Um, and um, basically what they do is do these gigantic deep dives into uh, various horror series... Uh, from cinema, um, where they just try to cover absolutely everything. And so what these wind up being are these 300 to 400 page longs, absolute goddamn tomes that are like, here's every single thing from the history of the Halloween films, or here's everything from the history of Friday the 13th, etc., etc. Um, I have been like plowing through these. Like I, I bought them like a year or two ago, and they've sort of been sitting in the corner. And I was like, that's actually just like such a large amount of text. I'm not sure I can dive in. And uh, they're just insane page turners for some reason. Uh, even for series that I don't care that much, much about. Anyway, uh, uh, Dustin has this book uh, in the series uh, from this publisher that's called Slash of the Titans, which is about oh. the decade plus history of trying to get the Freddy versus Jason film together. And as is the case with a lot of these other books, like it's it's a real deep dive into all the drafts that other people did and all the different ideas and what went wrong and like all the things that could have been, uh, which for something that like Freddy versus Jason was one of those ideas that like for, for more than 15 years, like everyone just knew just like a Batman v Superman, like it's just going to happen someday and it doesn't even matter if it's good. It's just going to print its own money. Uh, but with Freddy versus Jason, they actually were like, really like, we really need a really good script for this, or at least tried to for eight of the 10 years. Um, but like, a, it's a long running joke that everyone in Hollywood did a script or a pitch or something for Freddy versus Jason. And, and the truth is, yes, they did. And it's all sort of contained here, including interviews with everyone around it. Uh, and the the sheer number of like lunatic ideas that are out there, it, it it all sort of culminates in the fact that once you've seen Freddy versus Jason, you know it's a very very safe movie that I consider better than most people probably consider it. But it's it's sort of the end run of hearing from absolutely every lunatic from David S. Goyer on down. At one point, for a brief period, it was supposedly going to go to David Lynch. Which now, like, I just, I, I need to live in the multiverse timeline where there's a David Lynch, Freddy versus Jason in 2003. I need, I need that for me to keep going as a human being. So, like, I don't know. These, uh, you can find these on Amazon. Um, they're, they're, they're a pretty dense tomes to take out with you to the bar. But somebody also then knows that you're absolutely not there to speak to anybody because you're about to do an academia level uh, deep dive into something. But I, I've just plowed through almost all of the books from this publisher in the last couple of weeks and just keep going, wow, and wow. And also, like, everything in the Halloween book is just like, yeah, John Carpenter did work on this, but uh, without his girlfriend, Deborah Hill, 
uh, none of this exists at all because she basically wrote the first one almost by herself and like made all of his other movies. And you're like, once again, Deborah Hill, the un the unsung hero of all of eighties and nineties cinema. So I don't know. It's a, it's a fun one that I feel like applies to people in our audience that would love a deep dive into all the horror movies. They didn't get to see uh, Michael Myers participate in. Wasn't one of the, the versions of Freddy vs. Jason at one point going to be a courtroom drama? I have not finished the book yet, but I will report back to you if that's the case. I look forward to your thoughts. Um, a friend of mine, Lillian Boyd, runs a fantastic quixotic podcast called Rank and Vile, which sets off to rate every horror movie ever. I was privileged to talk about modern classic Split Second there a little while yes. ago. Yes. Yes, <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm sure that she she brought up that there was a, a Freddy versus Jason courtroom drama. Also, firstly, those sound great, and I'm about to go spend money on them. All right, why don't you take us out of this one? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, folks. This has a, has ever been a delight. Do please check out the back catalog because if you liked a blueprint for cultural punk rebellion and the literal burning anus of the world, do we have a back catalog for you? Please consider leaving a review on whatever podcatcher of choice you are listening to us on. Please consider promoting the show. It's always nice when people hear about our work. Um, and also, uh, I can be followed on Twitter at Alistair Stewart. Uh, Brock, where can folks find you? I am at Brock Wilbur, but also check out the uh, journalism we do each and every day of the week at thepitchkc.com. Uh, we do a lot of stuff local to Kansas City, but... Also, plenty of film uh, and TV review stuff, other big national stories. We're getting better at our jobs a little bit each and every day, so please come support what we're doing. And and you were pretty damn good at your jobs to begin with, so, you know. We'll see. Doing good work there, Chief. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on, Brock. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. We will see you next time. And remember, keep your hearts dark and true and your teeth sharp and many. And we'll see you next time in the void. <laughs>